I'm Wayne Turner, and welcome to the daily podcast of Bible Track. I've developed Bible Track to be both a commentary and a daily Bible reading schedule. These podcasts cover the text and commentary, which may be found at www.bibletrack.org. So, for those who have a busy schedule but do have time to listen to the Bible being read, this podcast is for you. At the end of one year, you will have gone completely through the Bible. As we continue our chronological reading of the Gospels, today we'll be looking at the Olivet Discourse, which is given on Mount Olivet overlooking Jerusalem in the week preceding his crucifixion. The passages we'll be looking at today are Matthew chapter 24, verses 32 down through 2546, Mark chapter 13, verses 28 to 37, and Luke chapter 21, verses 29 to 36. As I mentioned, this is the last half of the Olivet Discourse. So, this is a few days, as we mentioned before, Jesus was crucified on Mount Olivet overlooking Jerusalem, teaching his disciples. Jesus was asked at the beginning of this to elaborate on prophetic events in uh, Matthew chapter 24, verses 1 through 3. Also, we find that in uh, Mark 13, 1 through 4, and Luke 21, 5 through 7. Now, these passages today that we'll be looking at are a continuation of those comments. Uh, you may want to take a look for review purposes of the um, passages that we looked at in the last reading on the New Testament four days ago. Jesus teaches in these passages on the events that will take place within the period we know as the tribulation and the millennium that follows. If you want to look at a chart which can kind of give you an overview of everything that we're talking about, then consult the written notes for BibleTrack.org for today's reading, and there's a prophecy timeline. In our next section of reading, we'll be looking at the closing days of the seven-year tribulation. We're now going to be reading Matthew 24, 32 through 35, Mark 13, 28 to 31, and Luke 21, verses 29 to 33. First, Matthew 24, 32. Now learn a parable of the fig tree. When his branch is yet tender and putteth forth leaves, you know that summer is nigh. So likewise ye, when ye shall see all these things, know that it is near even at the doors. Verily I say unto you, this generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. Now from Mark's perspective in Mark 13, beginning with verse 28. Now learn a parable of the fig tree. When her branch is yet tender and putteth forth leaves, ye know that summer is near. So ye, in like manner, when ye shall see these things come to pass, know that it is nigh even at the doors. Verily I say unto you, that this generation shall not pass till all these things be done. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. Now over to Luke, chapter 21, beginning with verse 29. And he spake to them a parable. Behold the fig tree and all the trees. When they now shoot forth, ye see and know of your own selves that summer is now nigh at hand. So likewise ye, when ye see these things come to pass, know ye that the kingdom of God is nigh at hand. Verily I say unto you, this generation shall not pass away till all be fulfilled. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. Leading up to this passage, we have in view the closing days of the tribulation period. These cataclysmic events seem to correspond with the vile judgments that we see in Revelation chapter 16. 
Then an interesting and often misunderstood analogy is given by Jesus in Matthew chapter 24, verses 32 to 34, and Mark 13, 28 to 30, and Luke 21, 29 to 32. The analogy goes like this. When leaves appear on the trees, everybody knows that to be a sign that summer is near. Likewise, when the events just outlined in the previous verses of these chapters are viewed, the return of Jesus is near. The generation of people who will see the events of the tribulation will also see the second coming of Christ. Now, many good teachers have read something more into this analogy uh, than I'm feeling comfortable with. They maintain that the fig tree here is a metaphor representing Israel. The teaching they promote is that the generation of people who saw Israel shoot forth her leaves, in other words, become a nation in 1948, that will also be the generation who will see the second coming of Jesus Christ. Well, now, uh, one exception is one well-known teacher of prophecy maintains that the shooting forth of the leaves represents the land acquisition experienced by Israel as a result of the 1967 war rather than Israel's birth as a nation in 1948. He insists that the generation of people who witnessed that 1967 Six-Day War will also be the generation who will see the return of Christ rather than the generation that had seen the Declaration of Independence of Israel in 1948. That misunderstanding of this passage has led Christians to believe that the return of Jesus was to take place in 1978, which was 30 years from Israel's birth, and then 1988, 40 years, and then again 1998, which was 50 years. Besides their lack of clarity between the rapture and the actual return of Jesus Christ at the end of the tribulation, there are some scriptural difficulties with this interpretation of Jesus' parable. But one particular scriptural point voids the interpretation altogether. I'll explain exactly what I mean here. Now, let me say, first of all, that it is true that Jesus does use the fig tree to represent Israel in Luke chapter 13, verses 1 through 9, and perhaps again in Matthew chapter 21, verses 18 to 22, which is paralleled by Mark chapter 11, verses 20 to 26. However, it does not appear that Jesus is using the fig tree as a metaphor for Israel in this passage. In my mind, it overcomplicates this passage to view it as anything more than a simple analogy to nature. A comparison of the three accounts of Jesus' words right here demonstrates the reason I'm convinced that Jesus is giving a simple analogy rather than a complicated metaphor. You'll see exactly what I'm talking about by comparing Matthew chapter 24, verse 32 with Luke chapter 21, verse 29. Now, here's what Matthew writes. Now, learn a parable of the fig tree. However, Luke's account expands the wording as follows in verse 29. It says, Behold the fig tree and all the trees. Now, the inclusion of the phrase, all the trees, eliminates the possibility that there's a hidden meaning here with the fig tree being a metaphor for Israel. Because here's the deal. If the fig tree is Israel, then all the other trees must be a representation of all the other nations. Their national births took place at varying times in history. Luke's account of this teaching by Jesus seems to confirm that Jesus was giving a simple analogy to nature, as previously stated. In the next section of Scripture, we'll deal with the issue of, so when will Jesus return? Now we'll be looking at Matthew chapter 24, verses 36 to 51, 
Mark thirteen thirty two to thirty seven, and Luke twenty one verses thirty four to thirty six. First in Matthew twenty four thirty six. But at that day and hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered into the ark. And knew not until the flood came, and took them all away, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Then shall two be in the field, the one shall be taken and the other left. Two women shall be grinding at the mill, the one shall be taken and the other left. Watch therefore, for you know not what hour your Lord doth come. But know this, that if the goodman of the house had known in what watch the thief would come, he would have watched and would not have suffered his house to be broken up. Therefore be ye also ready, for in such an hour as ye think not, the Son of Man cometh. Who then is a faithful and wise servant, whom his Lord hath made ruler over his household, to give them meat in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his Lord, when he cometh, shall find so doing. Verily I say unto you that he shall make him ruler over all his goods. But and if that evil servant shall say in his heart, My Lord delayeth his coming, and shall begin to smite his fellow servants and to eat and drink with the drunken, the Lord of that servant shall come in a day when he looketh not for him, and in an hour that he is not aware of, and shall cut him asunder and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth." Now over to Mark's account in Mark chapter 13, verses 32 to 37. But at that day and that hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels which are in heaven, neither the Son, but the Father. Take ye heed, watch and pray, for ye know not when the time is. For the Son of Man is as a man taking a far journey, who left his house and gave authority to his servants, and to every man his work, and commanded the porter to watch. Watch ye therefore, for ye know not when the master of the house cometh, at even, or at midnight, or at the cock crowing, or in the morning, lest coming suddenly he find you sleeping. And what I say unto you, I say unto all, watch. Now over to Luke's account, Luke chapter 21, beginning with verse 34. And take heed to yourselves, lest at any time your hearts be overcharged with surfeiting, and drunkenness, and cares of this life, and so that day come upon you unawares. For as a snare shall it come upon all them that dwell on the face of the whole earth. Watch ye therefore, and pray always, that ye may be accounted worthy to escape all these things that shall come to pass, and to stand before the Son of Man. Having just read these passages, we see that both Mark and Luke close out their account of this discourse by Jesus with less detail than Matthew does. Mark and Luke sum up the return of Jesus to establish his kingdom on earth at the end of the tribulation, rather than simply stating the importance to keep a watch. Matthew includes the remainder of the Olivet Discourse, its specifics regarding how this second return of Jesus Christ will in fact take place. Matthew begins his expanded coverage of Jesus' remarks with the same analogy Luke recorded in Luke chapter 17, verses 26 and 27. It's that of Noah. In the Noahic scenario, who left the earth and who stayed behind? Well, here's the answer. The wicked were swept away by the flood, leaving the righteous family of Noah remaining alone on the earth to repopulate. 
This disappearance is not the rapture of the church. Here are two reasons why we know this is not the rapture. Number one is because Matthew 24 is a chronological account of the seven-year tribulation period. And this event takes place at the end of the chapter. Here's a second reason. In this analogy, the wicked disappear, and that's exactly what will happen at the end of the tribulation. The wicked are to be destroyed in Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 to 21. And the righteous people, they will remain on earth to populate the millennium. Now, listen closely. The rapture is not, I say, is not the second coming of Christ. Two different events there. According to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18, and 1 Corinthians 15, 51 through 53, Jesus appears in the clouds at the rapture, and believers meet him in the air. There is no return of Jesus to earth at that time, not at the time of the rapture. Jesus does return to the earth at the end of the tribulation, when the wicked are destroyed off the earth and the righteous remain on the earth for the millennium. So what about the two in the field and the two grinding, where one is taken and one is left, in Matthew chapter 24, verses 40 and 41? Well, it's obvious that the wicked one is the one taken away to judgment here, and that the righteous one is the one who is left for the millennium. And that's just, by the way, that's just as Noah and his family were left to repopulate the earth. Jesus then speaks a parable with another analogy to confirm this wicked disappearance hypothesis, the parable of the faithful servant in Matthew chapter 24, verses 45 to 51. Also, it's briefly alluded to in Mark chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. So here's the way this parable goes. The faithful servant lives and the unfaithful servant dies. There simply can be no serious dispute that this is referencing the end of the tribulation and not referencing the rapture, which is seven years earlier than that. The millennium on earth begins with only righteous people coming out of the tribulation period. That brings us to Matthew chapter 25. There is no parallel for this in Mark or Luke. We have a continuation of the Olivet Discourse. This Olivet Discourse that Jesus began back at the beginning of Matthew 24 continues into this chapter 25 of Matthew. While Mark and Luke cover the Olivet Discourse as well in Mark 13 and Luke 21, neither of them do so as comprehensively as Matthew. Mark and Luke chronologically cover the events of the tribulation all the way down to the end when Jesus returns to the earth as Messiah. Matthew 25, though, continues that chronological order with additional details regarding the second coming of Jesus Christ at the end of the tribulation. Matthew 25 cannot be properly understood outside of that context. So that brings us to the wedding supper of the Lamb, in Matthew chapter 25, verses 1 through 13. I mean, what is this wedding supper anyway? Well, let's look. Verse 1. Then shall the kingdom of heaven be likened to ten virgins which took their lamps and went forth to meet the bridegroom. And five of them were wise and five were foolish. They that were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. While the bridegroom tarried, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight there was a cry made, Behold, the bridegroom cometh, go you out to meet him. 
Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said unto the wise, Give us of your oil, for our lamps are gone out. But the wise answered, saying, Not so, lest there be not enough for us and you. But go ye rather to them that sell, and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and they that were ready went in with him to the marriage, and the door was shut. And afterward came also the other virgins, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Verily I say unto you, I know you not. Watch therefore, for you know not neither the day nor the hour wherein the Son of Man cometh. Now here's the culmination of the theme that Jesus has been introducing throughout his entire ministry. His return to establish his earthly rule as Messiah over the whole earth. Now don't forget that the kingdom of heaven is the name given by Jesus to this period of earthly rule by the Messiah, and that had been prophesied all the way back to the Old Testament. Look at my written notes on Matthew chapter 5 to get a really good overview of this kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God designation used by Jesus throughout his ministry. In these verses, Jesus gives a parable that compares the entry into this period by people at the end of the tribulation to people entering into a wedding feast. As is the case with all of Jesus' parables, you have to figure out who the characters are and who they're intended to represent in order for the parable to be meaningful. Throughout the Gospels, we've seen that the bad people or the foolish people in Jesus' parables are usually intended to be a representation of the Jewish leaders of Jesus' day. That'd be the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes. Throw in some Herodians along the way as well. This passage actually continues in that tradition. So here's the scenario. The wedding feast is the second coming of Jesus at the end of the tribulation. The bridegroom, of course, is Jesus, as introduced by John the Baptist in John chapter 3, verses 27 to 30, and confirmed by Jesus himself in Matthew 9, 15 and Mark chapter 2, verses 19 and 20. The foolish virgins here are the bride attendants who do not prepare. In other words, these are representations of Jews during the tribulation who do not anticipate Jesus' return. Now, the wise virgins are the bride attendants who do prepare and are ready for the second coming at the end of the tribulation. And finally, what about the oil and the lamps? Well, the identity of the bride herself and representation of the oil for the lamps, they're frequently conjectured by Bible teachers, but actually these components and whatever they represent aren't necessary to understand the lesson that's to be understood by this parable. Here, I'll explain what I mean. Here's the lesson of verses 1 through 13. Despite the clear indications of the second coming of the Messiah by the fulfillment of the events of Matthew 24, those tribulation events, many Jews who say they're looking for the coming of the Messiah will be completely unprepared when the event actually takes place. These foolish virgins they'll reject Jesus as the Messiah and thus be the equivalent of those at the end of Matthew 24, those who are taken away to judgment, to punishment, at the conclusion of the tribulation. On the other hand, those wise virgins, well, those will be the people who enter into the kingdom of heaven pictured in this parable as a wedding feast. We know these people as those who survived the tribulation and they then enter into what we now know to be the future millennium. So this wedding scenario to describe the millennium 
It was also used by Jesus earlier that crucifixion week in Matthew chapter 22, verses 1 through 14. You may want to take a look at those notes. So now let's expand on the definition of who the wise are and who are the unwise. We'll look at Matthew chapter 25, verses 14 through 30. For the kingdom of heaven is as a man traveling into a far country, who called his own servants and delivered unto them his goods. And unto one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, to every man according to his several ability, and straightway took his journey. Then he that had received the five talents went and traded with the same, and made them other five talents. And likewise, he that had received two, he also gained other two. But he that had received one went and digged in the earth, and hid his Lord's money. After a long time the Lord of those servants cometh and reckoneth with them, And so he that had received five talents came and brought other five talents, saying, Lord, thou deliverest unto me five talents. Behold, I have gained beside them five talents more. His Lord said unto him, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. He also that had received two talents came and said, Lord, thou deliverest unto me two talents. Behold, I have gained two other talents beside them. His Lord said unto him, Well done, good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. Then he which had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew thee that thou art an hard man, reaping where thou hast not sown, and gathering where thou hast not strawed. And I was afraid, and went and hid thy talent in the earth. Lo, there thou hast, that is thine." His Lord answered and said unto him, Thou wicked and slothful servant, thou knewest that I reap where I sow not, and gather where I have not strawed. Thou oughtest therefore to have put my money to the exchangers, and then at my coming I should have received mine own with usury. Take therefore the talent from him, and give it unto him which hath ten talents. For unto every one that hath shall be given and he shall have abundance. But from him that hath not shall be taken away even that which he hath. And cast ye the unprofitable servant into outer darkness, there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now this parable right here, uh, it's intended to further identify the activities of those who are wise during the period leading up to the second coming of Jesus Christ, as opposed to those who are unwise. Since Jesus gives us a glimpse of the intensity of this period in Matthew chapter 24, this parable is intended to motivate kingdom of heaven appropriate activity during this period. Jesus indicates that the servant who anticipates the return of his master during this period is the equivalent of the wise virgins. Those are the ones who had their lamps trimmed and ready to go in the first 13 verses. These faithful servants are those who properly prepared during the tribulation for the return of Jesus, the Messiah, at the end of the tribulation. On the other hand, those wicked and slothful servants are those Jews who, despite the indicators of the time, they don't anticipate nor do they prepare during the tribulation period leading up to the second coming of Jesus Christ. They're faithless, you see. Therefore, this passage is appropriately taught by most fundamental Bible teachers as the basis for judgment of the Jews at the end of the tribulation period. This understanding is strengthened by verse 32, which we'll look at in a few moments, where the Greek word ethnos is used and translated nations in the King James Version. 
The word ethnos is used frequently in the New Testament to differentiate between Jewish and non-Jewish people. Ethnos typically means non-Jewish and is often translated Gentiles. Now, as for the specifics of the parable, keep in mind that the servants are charged with increasing their master's wealth while he's away. The servant who declines to do so, he's categorized as wicked. So, why is he wicked? Well, Jesus implies that perhaps the wicked servant did not really believe his master would actually return. He did not work for his master while he was away. He literally rejected the mission assigned to him. We've seen this parable before with a few minor variations back in Luke chapter 19, verses 11 to 28. Back then, the audience was different, but the implications of the wicked people rejecting the Messiah, they're still integral components of that message. So now here's a question. What if you're not a Jew during the tribulation period? Well, the scenario for these people we found in Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 through 46. Let's read. When the Son of Man shall come in his glory, and all the holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory. And before him shall be gathered all nations, and he shall separate them one from another, as a shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats. And he shall set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come, ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was an hungered, and ye gave me meat. I was thirsty, and ye gave me drink. I was a stranger, and ye took me in. Naked, and ye clothed me. I was sick, and ye visited me. I was in prison, and ye came unto me. Then shall the righteous answer him, saying, Lord, when saw thou we an hungered, and fed thee, or thirsty, and gave thee drink? When saw we thee a stranger, and took thee in, or naked, and clothed thee? Or when saw we thee sick, or in prison, and came unto thee? And the king shall answer and say unto them, Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as ye have done it unto one of the least of these my brethren, ye have done it unto me. Then shall he say also unto them on the left hand, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was unhungered, and ye gave me no meat. I was thirsty, and ye gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and ye took me not in. Naked, and ye clothed me not. Sick, and in prison, and ye visited me not. Then shall they also answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we thee in hungered, or thirst, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister unto thee? Then shall he answer them, saying, Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as ye did it not to one of the least of these, ye did it not to me. And these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into life eternal." Now, I'm confident that these verses are given to explain the actions of faith during the tribulation period leading up to the second coming of Jesus by those who are not Jews. That differentiation is made clear by the Greek usage of the word ethnos, translated nations in the King James Version in verse 32. That word is used frequently in the New Testament to differentiate between Jews and non-Jews, very often translated Gentiles. Now here the concept is that before him shall all the nations be gathered, those are the non-Jewish people, who are alive at the end of the tribulation. Verse 31 clearly gives us the time frame and the setting for this judgment. It's at the conclusion of the tribulation, and it's to determine who enters into the millennium. Most fundamental Bible teachers do agree that this is the judgment of the nations. It's a judgment of non-Jews at the end of the tribulation. 
So here we have the sheep as representations of the righteous and the goats as representations of the unrighteous during the period of the tribulation. So um, how does a non-Jew express his faith in Jesus Christ during the period of tribulation leading up to the second coming of Jesus? Well, the faithful Gentiles, or the non-Jews of the tribulation, they'll express their faith in Jesus by ministering to the needs of those about the business of evangelizing the world. Those who are deemed at the end of the tribulation to be faithful, well, they're rewarded in verse 34 where it says, Then shall the king say unto them on the right hand, Come ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Those goats on the left who are deemed to have been unfaithful or faithless during this tribulation period, they'll have their reward in verse 41 where it said of them, Then shall he say also unto them on the left hand, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. The final reality of this judgment is found in Matthew twenty-five forty-six, where it says, There and these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into life eternal. Incidentally, those who reject the gospel message in this passage are also described in Matthew chapter 22, verses 11 to 14. In that passage, they are portrayed as a man who attempts to sneak into the wedding, being the millennium, but is banished instead. Now, there's an important note that I wish to make about the Olivet Discourse. Matthew chapters 24, 25, Mark 13, and Luke 21, those passages establish the framework upon which John's revelation is based. Those three passages outline the events of Revelation chapters 6 through 19. Matthew 25 corresponds to the same time frame as does Revelation chapter 20. To directly apply these passages outside their intended prophetic periods is to do a great injustice to sound Bible teaching. The people and events of these passages are to be understood as having their place in the future of the earth leading up to the second coming of Jesus Christ. This concludes our podcast for today. I'm Wayne Turner, and if you'd like to read along with our commentary online, go to www.bibletrack.org. Thank you for listening in today. The background music for these podcasts is an original composition written by the music director of Faith Bible Church, Paul Walton.